My daddy's gone on, my grandpa's gone on, my great-grandpa's gone on. But they still live. You know, the spray is still here. Well, they tell me of a home where no storm clouds rise. Tell me of a home far away. Oh, they tell me of a home where no storm Hello and welcome everybody to season two of It Still Lives. We are on our second episode and we've got a special project for you this month um, featuring not one, but three oral histories from the Foxfire Archive. This month, in honor of Black History Month, we're going to be focusing on African-American experiences in Appalachia. Um, unfortunately, African-Americans are pretty underrepresented in the overarching narrative of Appalachia, um, including our own archive. Um, I think in Foxfire 8, uh, that was the only time that there's really been a section of a book dedicated to um, African-American experiences in Appalachia. Um, and that was based largely on work that Foxfire student Lynn Butler did in the late 1970s, early 1980s. And since then, it's unfortunately been pretty sparse. Um, so we're trying to start correcting some of those oversights and to really pull out some of these existing oral histories that we do have and make those um, corrections in the future. And a lot of these omissions have a lot have more to do with access than interest, I yes. think. Um, and so access from the standpoint of how comfortable Foxfire students felt um, with going into the African American community, um, you know, just trying to work within their own networks and their own connections, um, just because of the not you know there was there was a segregation there not a forced segregation but there was a, a unofficial segregation of races um, as was the case in much of the country um, and so these students that were in the Foxfire program just didn't necessarily have uh, those personal relationships with people in the African American community and and may not have felt um, comfortable or, or capable. Uh, in going in and speaking with those people. Um, in, in, in the rare instances where they did have those connections, uh, as uh, Cami just referenced a second ago, um, you know, they, they did take that opportunity to speak with people in that community. Um, but whenever we're dealing with oral histories, there's, you know, there's a, a certain amount of complexity um, when sitting down with people within um, more... Um, defined folk groups, uh, and this can be across race, across gender, across socioeconomic level. Um, you know, a lot of times, um, you know, in the study of women's folklore and women's oral histories, if the person sitting across from the woman isn't also female, then you get sort of a different response than if the interviewer is female. Um, so in the case of the African-American experience from the perspective of the Foxfire program, um, there were not um, there are not very many African American students in the Foxfire program. I think you know fewer than you can count on one hand. And because of that, there was just real uh, you know very limited uh, access to those to those communities. Um, and and we see that uh, reflected in in our archive. And you know certainly part of that is probably demographic related, but there were very vibrant communities and very um, you know, sizable communities of African-Americans 
in this region. There are some interesting groups, particularly I know in White County of what's called the Bean Creek community. Um, this is an example of some of the smaller African-American communities throughout the Southern Appalachians. And they, interestingly enough, are the direct descendants of uh, slaves who never left the area where they were enslaved. So once they were freed, they remained in that area and built up their own community. And just to, to give you a geographic fix on where we're talking about, White County, Georgia is located um, essentially one county to the southwest of Rabin. So directly to our south is Habersham, directly to our west is Towns. But if you travel southwest, you get into White County, Georgia. Um, county seat is Cleveland, although it's probably more well known for a town called Helen, Georgia, um, which is uh, sort of a tourist um <laughs> the, the recreation of Bavaria uh, um, in, in in the Northeast Georgia mountains. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And Bean Creek, I think, is closest to Sauté Nicucci, which is just on the outskirts of Helen. Um, so that's just an example of, you know, one tight-knit community that formed here um, and it still exists today. And then, you know, one of the women that we'll be featuring this month, Carrie Stewart, she was actually born and raised in Franklin, North Carolina, which is where her ancestors were enslaved. Um, so we get, you know, these really deep connections to place that are a little bit different than some of uh, the other regions of Appalachia. Um, and that's something we'll get in, into a little bit today. So in order to provide appropriate context for this month's interviews that we are featuring, we really wanted to uh, connect with scholars in African-American studies in Appalachia particularly because TJ and I don't have, I would say, a deep background specifically in African-American studies. And so we really wanted to do justice to the interviews that we're providing here by reaching out to members who might have a better understanding of their experiences um, in these communities that we want to highlight. So we interviewed two scholars in um, African-American or Appalachian studies who were both highly recommended to us, and we had wonderful conversations with them. The first of these interviews was with Jessica Cushenberry, who is a folklorist who focuses on um, African Americans in coal mining communities, specifically Lynch, Kentucky, which she'll mention several times. Um, and then the second interview we conducted with Dr. Althea Webb, who's actually um, a professor of education at Berea College and a Western Kentucky native moved to Eastern Kentucky. So she's got some really interesting perspectives on Appalachia in general, and then particularly on um, African-American experiences in Appalachia. And even though she's in education, she's done a lot to encourage and explore research in diversity in Appalachia. I hope you all really enjoy both of these interviews. I think they have some really um, meaningful content that will help provide context for the interviews we'll be sharing throughout this month. So for Jessica's interview, we began by just asking her to introduce herself and her work. My name is Jessica Cushenberry. Um, I have my bachelor's in apparel merchandising with a minor in business from Indiana University, and I have my master's in American studies with an emphasis in folklore. And my area of focus in my master's was African-American studies, particularly in Appalachia. Also um, in festival studies, which I talk a little bit about in my thesis. Um, and I also talk about um, familial ties, fictive kinship relationships, um, and how 
Essentially, the Eastern Kentucky Social Club perpetuates these familial ties among a group of people who seem to get lost in the narrative of Appalachia. And then my intended goal for my PhD is um, to study American studies with an emphasis in um, folklore and African-American studies and museum curation so that eventually I can create exhibits that show blacks in Appalachia and how they are really instrumental in the narrative that's often overlooked about them. When I very first started looking at Appalachia, I started with my own family who was from um, southern Appalachia down in Alabama and how they migrated. And essentially, if you read any literature about blacks in Appalachia, you find that most of them kind of got into the idea of coal mining post-slavery. It was one of the limited job options that they had outside of sharecropping, and it was better pay. They were provided housing through usually company-owned towns, which owned everything from the grocery store to the houses they lived in to the schools. The only thing that was exclusive were the churches. And what happens is you see them kind of make this shift from one labor-intensive task to another labor-intensive task where they get involved in these coal mines and they become migratory families through the late 1800s all the way up to the early 1900s, 19-teens, and they migrate from town to town trying to find work at the best coal mine. Competitive pay for the region, there was very little discrimination against pricing as far as who gets paid what wages based on your um, your ethnic background. And then as you move closer to the 1930s and 40s, you see, especially in coal mining towns, how um, fully company-owned towns, because it wasn't always coal. Sometimes it was steel or something called coke, which is a byproduct of coal. Um, you see how that essentially becomes like um, a good income for people. But as we move less from a coal-based fuel system and more into an electric fuel system where we have what we consider modern lights and power, you see there's a decline in coal and coal mining related fields like steel and coke. And so there's another out-migration out of Appalachia into bigger cities where there's more industrial work. So you start seeing people move from labor-intensive work like coal mining into things like um, car, cars, um, car manufacturing, or just into towns, and you see less less of um, coal miners' children going into the coal mines and more of them going out and finding other jobs related to something that's not as labor-intensive, not as bad for your health, all the way through the 1960s. And then in the 1980s is when you see a strong decline in labor-intensive activities in Appalachia. Now, as far as black people or people of color go, just people in general, they begin to kind of move out of this idea that the only jobs that they can have are these labor-intensive ones based on the slavery mentality and to these, this mindset that they can have more equality because they find that in these coal mining towns. They tried to operate in the idea of separate but equal, but that was very specific to who owned what coal mining town where. It wasn't, it wasn't um, a standardized process. It was just based on who owned the towns, and these were privately owned towns where people were renting and making money, things like that. People began to save. You see black people starting to kind of develop their own cultures, and it becomes this competition of who can create the best town to keep people, because if they could keep the people, 
in the town. They could have a closed circuit community. They could make their money. Essentially, every dollar you owned was touched by whatever corporation you worked for, and that corporation made a vast amount of money off of a person doing everyday tasks. And so it creates a prosperous area for people of color, particularly black people, to start kind of establishing themselves. And then as they move out, they can take those values that they learned that they didn't have access to in previous generations and apply it to wherever they go to. It's kind of this idea that they moved through Appalachia and it wasn't like a consistent stop and start, stop and start. It was they moved until they could not find work anymore. And when there was no longer work, people kind of made a mass exodus out. One of our first questions for Jessica was to discuss this idea of relationship to place. Since she deals primarily with migratory communities, um, we thought it provided an interesting contrast to what we experience here in our region of Appalachia, where people are um, deeply rooted in place. As we mentioned earlier, there are several communities of um, the descendants of slaves who remained in the same area where their ancestors were slaves. Um, so we invited her to kind of explore this topic and share her thoughts with us. I think it's a kind of a twofold thing. Um, one, it I believe it depends on where in Appalachia you are, right? Um, so I know most of my work focuses on southeastern Kentucky. And in southeastern Kentucky, there's this huge idea that they're attached to the landscape through the people. And you see that celebrated during their old Memorial Day rituals, right? So Memorial Day is to say that you remember those who have gone before you and you spend time cleaning the graves, things like that. Um, in southeastern Kentucky, where I studied, prior to it becoming this giant festival or this larger festival that it is now, um, initially people went back to Appalachia to connect with the people who were still in the earth, right? So as people died, they would go back, they would clean the graves, they would spend time with the people, and that was their connection to the land. But also they had this, from my from my research, um, they have this kind of like idea of how things worked, right? So when they talk about things of the past, they talk about how pop, like well-populated their cities were. You know, they're, I mean, these aren't huge cities, a few thousand people in a very tiny, like, less than a mile radius. But they talk about how houses went up, how there was trees, and they were very connected to to the architecture that they developed in the landscape and less about the actual landscape itself. So for, for Lynch, Kentucky, for example, um, where my family's from and where most of my participants are from, from all of my research, they talk about how when Lynch was at its prime, their connection was to all these various buildings and how these buildings kind of were just engrafted into the landscape. Or if you go into the coal mines, you can go, I don't know if you've ever been to Lynch, Kentucky, but you can go in a non-functioning mine and you can take like a 30, 45 minute museum tour essentially where they have animatronics that let you kind of, that tells you the history of coal mining at Portal 31, which is a, um, a non-working coal mine in Appalachia. Um, and you kind of get to discover like how people got there you know, what kind of coal they had there. Why was it important? You get to see about how, you know, they used animals and people and their connection is to the community and the communal land and less of like Appalachia as a whole. One of the challenges we encounter as a community-based archive 
um, full of oral histories is how to best represent these stories um, while still doing justice to the historical record. Um, I would argue that oral histories are inherently biased. I think they are an amazing way to capture primary source material, um, but certainly, you know, time and memory and personal experiences will alter people's perceptions of history and, um, you know, create a personal narrative, even though it does shed some great light on history. Um, there are certainly omissions from those records. Like TJ mentioned earlier, there's issues of access. Um, there's so many variables. Yeah. It's, there's variables <laughs> that are, you know, like you were talking about connected to memory and time and the ways that our memories are shaped over time mm -hmm. and the ways that they change over time with experience and hindsight and all of that. But then there's also the context in which the interview takes place. Who's the person conducting the interview? What is the reason for the interview? Uh, what, who's the audience, the eventual audience for the interview? Is the interviewee cognizant of that audience? Are they thinking about that audience? So there are, you know, certain amounts of bias, omissions, um, uh, changing perspectives or, or, or um, uh, I, I don't like to use the word manipulating, but certainly um, crafting uh, the narrative based on all these different variables. And that can give us a, a, not necessarily an accurate record of a historical moment or historical event, but certainly an incomplete record mm -hmm. of that particular time and place. So we just asked Jessica for her opinion or thoughts about how to best uh, make up for some of those silences or perhaps inaccuracies um, that might crop up in some of the oral histories that we encounter. I mean, I think she provided us with a really um, thoughtful response. One, you have to be, as, as a scholar, as an academic, you have to be very aware of your access to information and you have to be very intentional about how you use that access to information to represent someone else's story but you also have to consider that people are telling their stories from their perspective and how they remember that. So when I spoke with my participants um, about life in Appalachia, it was this very, what I would consider kind of like rose-colored glasses lens that they, they took to it. They were like, it was a great thing. We didn't experience you know, racial tension, or we didn't feel like we were inferior, or even though we were separate, we, we felt like there was equality, and there was that narrative that was kind of pushed. And it was acknowledging that that's how the participants felt, that they didn't feel like there was racial tension. But it's also acknowledging what was actually happening based on what access to literature you have, right? So you can say, the people who were living this out based on their perception and their memory of things, it looks like this. And memory is a very kind of touchy thing. Like, love oral histories. We get to hear people's stories. That's how we can document a lot of things. But the, one of the downfalls of oral histories is you don't remember everything verbatim. And as time goes on, we begin to lose details of things. So we kind of hoard on the things that we enjoy. So if we had a really great memory about you know, this school or this team or this thing that we did, we tend to latch on to that. And we tend to remember the best parts of that over the other maybe not so positive things about that. So it's, it's acknowledging that there is racial tension, there is this thing happening, you know, and we, we see evidence of it happening, you know, in our country, in that region, in that community. 
but the participants don't remember it like that. And what's the important thing? Is it are we really harping on how it's remembered or how it actually happened? Right? And when you're when you're dealing with someone else's story, you have to be very intentional that you tell their story to the best of your ability how they would have you tell it and not tell the story that you think other people want to hear. So our final question to Jessica was, what change is she noticing in the region and how does she think African-American communities or scholarship is going to grow and change over time? Um, Because certainly Appalachia is thriving with um, new communities and also, I would argue, returning um, generation, the returning youth to the area um, who are starting to kind of reclaim their own history um, and shed new light on some of the stories that may have been overlooked in the historical narrative. I feel like there's a strong population, but a very small population of people who want to come back to Appalachia, right? It's that idea of like romanticizing the past that we see a lot of times when something old becomes new and trendy again. And I think that's kind of a a scary gray area because what I don't want to see happen to Appalachia, Southern Appalachia, is people to come in and have these lofty ideas. And then when they don't have the resources available, then they kind of bail out on a community. Um, I, But the bigger thing that I see is I don't see a lot of younger generations, right? Like, in my in my family's case, my family moved out, out of Appalachia in the 60s, you know, and we didn't have a generation go back for almost 50 years, right? And now we have people there, but it's such a small grouping of people, and we're more of visitors. We haven't really laid roots in that region yet. And so I, I'm, I feel like what's going to probably happen is Appalachia is going to evolve, and as as industry comes and goes and it ebbs flows, we'll see like this migration kind of of a wave happening, right? So I know, for example, in um, in like Kentucky and Virginia, like southeastern Kentucky and Virginia, we're seeing mines opening again, right? And people want to take these mining jobs because they make really, really good money. Very dangerous work, but very good money. So people who are interested in just the work associated with Appalachia will be drawn into that region. But people who are interested in the sustainability of the region, they're probably not going to stay if that's all that's offered there. So I feel like we have to wait this one out. I can't say that we'll see a large influx of people come in and be gung-ho about becoming a part of what Appalachia is. But I can say that we have to see how we're going to deal with the problems of Appalachia and how we're going to get people to stay through those problems because there's a lot of problems in the region. I think probably one of the biggest things that I want to say about Blacks and Appalachia Appalachia is that they're there and they're present and they're actively doing the work even when no one is looking for it. Like, for example, the Eastern Kentucky Social Club. They have 13 chapters that are active across the country that I'm aware of. They may have more active ones, but they do work every single year to provide scholarships. They do community activism, not just in Appalachia, but they take their Appalachian love all across the country. I mean, there there's chapters in New York City, there's chapters in California, there's chapters in Indiana. And so it's it's this idea that once you're in the community, you're always in the community. 
And I don't want people to feel like just because they don't live in Appalachia that they don't have the Appalachian roots. And there's just so many good things that are still coming out of Appalachia. So our second interview was with Dr. Althea Webb, um, who we introduced earlier. And we just had her begin with a simple introduction of herself and her work and her experiences with African-American studies in Appalachia. I'm Althea Webb. Currently, I'm employed at Berea College as an associate professor. I've been at the college since 2007. I teach in the Education Studies Program, so I'm helping to prepare teachers for the region and to return to their homes. We have people from other states as well. I'm a native Kentuckian, but I grew up in western Kentucky. I found my way to eastern Kentucky when I was working on my Ph.D. in education at the University of Kentucky. And actually, I really loved Lexington, and I didn't want to leave Lexington. So I thought I was just taking a job at Berea, 30 miles from Lexington, and I thought everything was going to be hunky-dory. In fact, it turned out better than hunky-dory, but it wasn't what I anticipated. I've done a little bit of work around African-Americans in Appalachia. Um, I've done some work on interracial work. Um, in Louisville with um, the YWCA women in the early 1900s. So I haven't published a lot, I haven't written a lot, but I have a lot of passions about things. We also asked uh, Dr. Webb to provide more um, historical context for African Americans in Appalachia in order to sort of frame some of the oral histories that we'll be sharing with you next week. I think I'm probably... Like most people, um, I live in a state um, that has an Appalachian region. I mean, of course, West Virginia is the only state that's wholly in Appalachia. But I grew up in the part of the state that was not in the Appalachian region, and I learned a lot of the stereotypes, and I really thought they were true. Um, And so I assumed everyone was white um, in the region, and I think that's still common knowledge, maybe even within the region in some places, I've traveled a little bit in northern Appalachia, southern Appalachia, and, of course, I live in central Appalachia. I don't know that there are any stark differences other than being in northern United States, central United States, and the southern United States. Of course, there are more minorities in the south, so that's true of the southern region of Appalachia as well. People came to Appalachia for different reasons. Native Americans were here first. Uh, People came seeking opportunity. People came looking for work. And when it it came to the industries, the coal industry especially, they brought immigrants in. And that, from what my my understanding is, to work in the coal camps, you had white Appalachians. They brought African-Americans up from the south, and then they brought immigrants into the country. And by having these three different populations and having them segregated, in community housing and camp coal camps, they worked together, but they didn't really, they didn't think they would communicate enough to uh, form labor unions and strike out against the company. And so when you had the industries decline and people migrated out, you know, at that point there had been some blending of the culture, but I think most, there were more white Appalachians who stayed, and I think the more, the Minority people, more of them left. And I could be wrong about that, but that's my impression. The, I think the region has always been diverse. Native Americans were always there. 
the immigrants and the black people came very early on. But for some reason that gets overlooked. I, I personally think it's our country's need to romanticize poverty and to prove that we're not racist when it comes to poverty. So they always look to Appalachia to point out white poverty. So that means you have to ignore the other people who are here. But it's, to me, it's just the foundational things like, look, poverty has no specter of race. There are a whole, a whole lot of white people who are poor. And I think that's what's happened with Appalachia. The, the richness, the diversity of it has gotten lost for a larger narrative to counteract our racist policies for, that keep people in poverty. Like Jessica, we also asked Dr. Webb about her thoughts on relationship to place, um, especially regarding how it impacts current generations. I don't have firsthand knowledge of that. I've met very few African-American poor Appalachians. Mm -hmm. My impression is that they're no different than the white people, and they do have a connection to the land. They did grow up playing in the mountains. Um, I've not developed that connection. I grew up next to a river. Uh, Water stirs my soul. I don't get the mountain thing, so, you know, that's how I always know <laughs> that it's my proxy that I'm here because I don't, I don't understand it. Um, and they probably don't understand my connection to the river, you know, the flowing water. It's, you know, it's what you grow up with. It's what you're used to. It's your touchstone. It's where your memories are formed. I, I just can't imagine that it would be different for African Americans. I just can't imagine that it would be. I would hope that that sense of home and that sense of pride would endure generation after generation and people would return. We do not get a lot of black Appalachians in our college. We just don't. It might be true that what happens in the larger public institution where your African-Americans are um, discriminated against, that might be happening here as well. So the number of people you have that you're sending out who could come back is maybe um, not as many. I do think there are people moving into the region who are activists um, they may not have grown up here, but they might have ties to the community. There's a lot more, I think, on the Internet with blogs and websites, uh, making those connections. But, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Dr. Webb had some really helpful thoughts about how to utilize our collections and how best to perhaps um, compare and contrast those with other existing oral histories or historical records in order to create a, a more perhaps well-rounded approach um, to African-American history in Appalachia. There are other oral histories out there in other locations um, taken by African-Americans with African-Americans. I don't know if you could have access to those, and you could always compare and contrast. You could always um, include more data on from other sources to put it in context, uh, that might help. But I think if you were clear and um, how you presented it with maybe some of the challenges and questions people need to ask as they're using the materials, I think, I think that would, you know, help. And then finally, we invited Dr. Webb to share her thoughts about changes occurring in the region and any closing thoughts that she would have liked to share with us. I think the region is continuing to grow in diversity. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think part of that is still because uh, I think white people are migrating out still, not in large numbers. Mm -hmm. um, 
there might be something attractive in the landscape that appeals to Hispanic people, Latinos, African Americans, and it draws them here. And I think most of the diversity is found in the southern region and in the larger cities. I think that's going to continue. I think the diversity is going to increase. It's going to continue. I don't – I have pretty good hope that we'll all be able to get along. And But I don't know – with migration, I don't know how much we're going to be able to preserve the Appalachian culture as more people come in from outside the region. If they don't make deep connections with people who grew up in the region – even though their children are growing up in the region, it's still going to be different for them. I guess I would have to say from my own personal experience, people are missing the beauty of Appalachia, and it's such a well-kept secret. I just wish our country were more open and would embrace the region more. Um, But the people here know what we have, and they have pride in that. That's the important thing. So we hope you enjoyed these interviews and learned a few things from them. They were certainly incredibly informative for me and helped me prepare this month's podcast series, I think. And I really enjoyed getting the chance to talk um, with both of these scholars and look forward to um, engaging in further discussions in the future. But some notes that we just kind of want to leave you with, you know, migration came up in both of these conversations And it made me really um, think about how migration is not in the past. We have the big migration events that we always talk about. You know, we talk about, of course, uh, European migration, but also the African diaspora. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, migrations of of communities of people, the African-American community. There was the great migration of the early part of the 20th century. These are like big migration events that we, we, we learn about in our history books, but migration is also about continuity and change, and we are always in flux and always in change. Wherever you live, there's you know changes in demographics, changes in, in uh, everything from race to gender to, to different you know religious identities uh, moving into a region, moving out of a region, um, and, and Appalachia is not immune to those changes, and we've seen certainly over the last, you know, the 54 years of Foxfire, um, great changes in the southern Appalachian region as, as it relates to migration and the movement of people across the land. Uh, Appalachia is changing. It's always been changing <laughs> since the first European settlers and first uh, um, African enslaved peoples were, were brought into the area, uh, displacing indigenous peoples or, or in some instances living in harmony with indigenous peoples. But um, this is a place that has seen a lot of great change over over several hundred years and will continue to do so and it's not it's certainly not something to uh, in my opinion worry about it's it's just it's just the natural order of things and with with new cultures and with new uh, uh, new people to an area you get some really exciting uh, results and as it relates to the culture and the ways that the culture is uh, uh, refined and redefined and enriched and, and all of those wonderful things that come from cultural diffusion and the interaction of different peoples with one another. Yeah, I definitely think it's something to get excited about. I think as humans, our natural reaction is to perhaps be resistant to change. But I think migration, especially the way we're talking about in Appalachia, is, is more gradual, so it's easier to 
um, accept it as it happens, but, you know, I think it's also great to reflect on it and look at, it, as you mentioned, all the wonderful and exciting things that can come out of migratory habits and in influx of new new ideas and new cultural traditions. You know, and that being said, like diversity in Appalachia is nothing new. You know, as Dr. Webb mentioned, we tend to have this white, monolithic, stagnant picture of Appalachia in our minds, and that's just not the case. She wrote a wonderful essay, um, and we'll link it through our podcast website, about, um, you know, diversity in Appalachia, highlighting that, you know, there's been all these great groups that have kind of converged in Appalachia from the Native Americans to the Europeans to African Americans and uh, the group called the Melungeons, and then um, now we've got huge waves of Hispanic communities coming into the area. And I think there's a lot, a lot of potential for research in looking at this diversity, both historically and um, in the contemporary period. And then finally, you know, just as we've mentioned several times, oral history is extremely complex. And there are a lot of issues that we as folklorists and oral historians grapple with on a daily basis in terms of sharing or interpreting oral histories. You know, as we go through these next few weeks um, and, you know, even throughout this podcast series, just to always keep an open mind about the oral histories that you're listening to um, and, you know, always feel open and free to engage with us, TJ and I are always more than willing to um, engage in discussions about the content that we're sharing because we, we love it. We are so very passionate about it and hope that you all are interested in it as well. That being said, for February, we've got uh, three more episodes coming out for you. They'll be released on each Tuesday um, in the morning as usual. And the first week is going to feature an interview with Carrie Stewart, who was perhaps the oldest contact when Foxfire interviewed her. She was almost 100 years old at the time of her first interview. Um, so she's got some really amazing memories, particularly some handed down through oral tradition in her own family. And then the second is with Bruce Mosley, who uh, lived and worked in Raven County, Georgia. And then the third is with Anna Tutt, who is from, I believe, Cornelia, Georgia, which is just a little bit south of where we're at here at Foxfire. And they're all just really great, vibrant interviews. Um, and we really look forward to sharing those with you. So in the meantime, go to your local library or your uh, bookstore and pick up a copy of Foxfire 8. Uh, there's a whole section in there on African-Americans in Appalachia um, that will also include full transcripts of the interviews we'll be sharing over the next couple of weeks. So if you're interested in learning more, I definitely recommend picking up that book. And we look forward to having you join us next week. Yeah. Y'all have a good one. Thanks. If you don't like that, you can throw it away. I like it. <laughs>